I did not grow up going to church regularly. I had a wonderful childhood, but we just did not attend church. Jesus just seemed like a figure and someone who seemed like a good person. It all seemed like a great idea, but I just never was presented with the idea of actually having a relationship with Jesus. I found myself seeking happiness in accomplishments, getting that next degree, getting that next job, moving into that nice apartment, buying that house. And I just found myself being very disappointed. When I started dating my boyfriend, who's now my husband, we uh, found Rock Point Church and we walked in, um, immediately just felt like there was something that was kind of holding on to us here. Um, quickly after joining Rock Point, we started um, attending a small group and this group of believers just really cared about my journey and my relationship with Christ and um, just provided me with great evidence of such a loving and wonderful God. I was driving one day to work and it was a very busy and hectic week. I remember a moment when I just kind of felt a peace come over me. Up until that point, I had been praying and, and seeking God and asking to feel his presence, but I never, I, I could never feel him. And in that moment, I knew it was God just kind of putting his hand on me and saying, I'm here. Through my journey of salvation, I've been able to understand uh, my role in this world. Um, whereas my job kind of used to be just something I got up and did every day, now I see a purpose in it. I see that God put me into that place for a reason. Looking to the future, I'm just very excited to share my story with others and to explain to others just why it's so important and why we all need Christ. Just the other day, I had the opportunity, uh, the privilege to, to go visit one of our members at the hospital. Their child was, was there, and so I needed just to go to be and to sit and to, and to listen and minister. Um, but I wasn't able to go until after I was done with my teaching responsibilities here on Wednesday night. And so I was going to have to go down to Cook Children's way past uh, the normal visiting hours. And so I just want to make sure before I head down to Fort Worth that I was going to be able to get in. And so I picked up the phone and called and said, hey, I'd love to come down. A member of our church has, has a child there. I'd love to come visit the family. I'm going to be after normal visiting hours, but I'm clergy. I'm pastor and they want me there. Is, is that Okay. I just heard some silence on the other end of the phone. She's like, I don't know about that. Let me check. I'll get back to you. Boom. And like immediate, immediately on hold. And so I got to listen to that wonderful music um, for a little bit. And then she picks the phone back up and she goes, all right, I checked. It's okay. Just bring proof that you're clergy. Boom. <laughs> I, and I kind of froze in that. So I was like, wait, wait. I'm like, I didn't get a receipt when I became clergy. No, it's like. It's not on my bills. My driver's license just says Destin. So I'm like, I, I'm in a denomination. We don't even have pastor clothes, right? We just wear sweaters. And so I'm like, I do not know what I'm going to do. Maybe I'll show up with my laptop and go, look, I preached once or twice, right? I've got a little name tag. Actually, one of the things that came through my mind, um, when I graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, they not only sent me a big diploma, but they sent me a micro diploma. 
And I've never, look, I've got it right here. I don't know why I carry it around, but there it is. <laughs> Proof. Now, I've, yeah, right. When they sent this to me, I wasn't really sure. And I was like, well, I'll try it out at restaurants and movies. And um, I just get charged more. <laughs> so um, I thought, well, maybe this will come in handy. Maybe this is the moment, right? I can sneak into a hospital with this. But my buddy called down to the front desk. He said, hey, pastor's coming. Please let him in. And, and that's what made it work, right? But I started to doubt if even I was a pastor. Like, I'm not even sure I can prove that I'm my own pastor, right? And so we have those moments in our lives, right, where we have made a claim and someone goes, prove it. Maybe you've done that, you know, I, I can do this, I can do that, I got this much, I can bench so much, whatever it is. And they're like, oh, yeah, prove it. Or, or maybe someone in your life has made a claim. It seems outrageous. It seems ludicrous. And you're like, I need some evidence. You need to prove that to me. Right, this is what happens with these big, bold, outrageous claims. We, we kind of want some proof. What's interesting is that the gospel of John, this is exactly what he does. John makes a bold, outrageous, ludicrous claim. And, 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 and let's say, imagine this. He, he says this about the, the baby Jesus, born in a manger. At the end of his gospel, he writes this. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that my believing, you may have life in his name. This is a bold, outrageous claim. To claim that Jesus is the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one whose everybody's hopes and dreams were put in that he would come and deliver and rescue them. To say that it was Jesus, it's a bold claim. To say that Jesus was the son of God. That God was his father. That what it is, is he equates that he and God are equals, co-heirs together. That's an outrageous claim. To say that by believing in Jesus, you can have eternal life, that is a bold statement. It is God and God alone who can forgive the sins of the people. It is God and God alone who can give eternal life. And for John to say, no, that's Jesus. It's a bold claim. And so just imagine this, right? Imagine that John writes his gospel down. He just finishes it and he says, all right, I want you to be the first one to read it. Tell me what you think. And you start and you start reading through and you, you get to that statement that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And by believing in him, you'll have eternal life. You read that and you look to John and you're like, I don't know, man. How are you going to prove that? How are you going to back that up? And he says, oh, I'm so glad you asked. Because the sentence before, he writes this. Now Jesus did many signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, have life in his name. So here's what John's saying. He says, I can prove to you that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of God, that by believing you could have life in his name. And here's how I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to use signs. I'm going to use his miracles. And Jesus did a lot of miracles. He goes, I don't need all of them. All I need is seven. And that's his gospel. 
he lays out and talks through seven different signs, seven different miracles, each one demonstrating that Jesus has a specific power, each one demonstrating that he is God, the son of God. And so we want to look at those tonight. The first miracle happens in John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cain of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there, and also Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does it have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there are six stone water there, jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cain of Galilee, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Incredible miracle, right off the bat, right? He didn't even use the right ingredients. He skipped the whole grape thing, right? And he said, oh, I'm just going to take the water. I'm going to make 180 gallons of wine. He skips the whole process, there's no fermentation that happened. Jesus speaks it, and immediately it's wine. And it's not just any kind of wine. It's some of the best wine, right? They, they say in the text there, he goes, usually what happens is people bring out the, the really good wine where people can still taste things. Then when they get super drunk, they bring out the yellowtail of the Boone's Farm, right? And so <laughs> Jesus didn't do that. He turned this into a full-body, smoky, peppery Malbec that was delicious, right? And so here's what it's demonstrating. Jesus demonstrates his power over quality. He can take nothing and he can make it the best. It's a sign that he is God. The second sign is the healing of the nobleman's son found in John 4. It says, so he came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water of the wine and Capernaum was there, an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come, he went to him. He asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, will you not believe? The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke. And he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him his son was recovering. So he asked them, what was the hour he began to get better? And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew this was the exact hour when Jesus said, your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household. And this was now the second sign Jesus did when he had come from Judah to Galilee. And what it says here in the text is that when Jesus spoke, it instantaneously happened. There is confidence in the words of Jesus Christ. The man did not know it at the time. He was away from his son. But as he was traveling back, when he spoke to his servants, the second Jesus said it, it absolutely happened. 
This demonstrates Jesus' power over distance. I don't know how far away from God you are, but it's not far enough. It's not outside of his reach. Jesus did not have to be in the presence of this boy to heal him. There's no distance in the world that could stop Jesus' power as God. And it's demonstrated here. The third sign that John records to prove this is the healing of an invalid in John 5. What happens is Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's walking through and he, he goes to the pools of Bethesda. It's a place where there's kind of multiple pools and the water would turn over, the hot and the cold, and move from the upper pool to the lower pool. The, the waters would stir. The myth, the lore was that angels or mythological beings were stirring the water. And the first person to get in the water, once it was stirred, would be healed. So Jesus is here and he's walking among the people. And he sees a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And he leans down to him and he says, do you want to get better? Do you want to get well? What's incredible is that this guy, instead of saying, yes, please heal me, what he, he starts making excuses. He starts whining and complaining. Well, I can't get to the water. No one's here to pick me and someone else beats me up in. And Jesus pretty much just cuts him off and says, get up, take your mat and walk. Later, what would happen is that Jesus would run into him a few days later and be talking to him. He says, hey, now that you're better, don't sin anymore. And this is a pivotal moment in the signs and the miracles of John because before, the signs have just addressed the physical realm. But now Jesus begins to address the spiritual realm. Signs performed in the physical realm give testimony to what Jesus can do in the spiritual realm. And what this sign demonstrates is Jesus' power over time. 38 years was nothing. I don't know how long it's been for you, but he can handle it. He has power over any amount of time you can imagine. If it's been a lifelong thing, he can handle it. Then this fourth sign feeding of the 5,000. We're right in the middle. There's been three. There's going to be three. And this one, Jesus does something really interesting. There's a crowd around him. They head up to the mountainside, the hillside. And he turns to Philip and he says, see all of these people? He goes, how do you think we should feed them? And he, and he says this. The text says this. He says he does this to test Philip. And I think John records it to test you and to test the readers. As you've been reading along, if you've been seeing Jesus display his power, he's like, what would you suggest, reader? And Philip goes, oh, Jesus, he goes, 200 denarii, 200 days wage, almost a half a year's salary. Could not even get enough to give everybody a tiny little morsel. There's 5,000 men here. That's probably 10, 15, 20,000 people all together. And so Philip hasn't got it yet. He's been hanging out with Jesus. He's seen the water to wine. He's seen the invalid healed. But yet he's still not certain of who Jesus is. Andrew may be a little bit closer. He finds a boy in the crowd. And he brings him up and he says, here's his lunch, five loaves and two fish. Jesus said, that'll work. Sit him down. Jesus prays over it and they start feeding 
It says that out of all those people, everyone ate till they had their fill. And then they collected 12 baskets of leftovers. And what this demonstrates is Jesus' power over quantity. I don't know what you need and I don't know how much you need, but it doesn't matter. Jesus has the power to provide in the most amazing and fathomable ways. He has a power over all the quantity. I mean, he's the one who created the law of conservation of mass, right? Matter can neither be created nor destroyed. And in this moment, he's like, oh, yeah, I did do that little thing. Let me just push that aside because I'm going to make some matter happen right now. And he produced his matter out of nothing, fish and loaves and feeds thousands of people. He's got power over quantity. The fifth sign, John 6. When evening came, the disciples went out to sea. They got in a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. And now it was dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea became rough and it was strong as the wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And when they were glad to take them into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And this sign, to me, clearly demonstrates Jesus has power over nature. And I think there's something even more to it, right? In the midst of storm-threatening death, Jesus has the one, has the power to bring life. We move to the sixth sign that John records. It's giving sight to a blind man. It says, as he passed by, Jesus passed by, he saw one blind from birth. And the disciples asked him, they said, Rabbi, who sinned? Is it this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not this man, and it was not his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus said the reason he was born blind is for this moment, what I'm about to do right now. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day and night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he went and washed and he came back seeing. To me, this demonstrates Jesus' power over helplessness. And I don't know how helpless you feel, what infirmity or sickness or disease or handicap be it literal or figurative, but Jesus has power over helplessness. He changes this guy's destiny in an instant. What's so cool about this passage is the way John sets up his gospel is he's got these seven signs that he's talking about. But in the time he's talking about these seven signs, he also records seven I am statements from Jesus. And there's a few occasions where the sign and the I am statement overlap to kind of give a double meaning, an extra punch to the message. It happens three times. First, in the feeding of the 5,000. Just shortly after that, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You've been trying to fill up on life's things and it's leaving you empty and hungry. I am the one who gives incredible provision and sustenance. He says it here. 
as he's healing a blind man, he says, I am the light of the world. And one author says this, the symbolism cannot be mistaken. You and I were all born blind in our sin. And it is by Jesus and through belief in Jesus, who is the light of the world, that we can receive sight, be saved, and have eternal life. Which leads us to our seventh and final sign that John records. Jesus was very close with a family, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And he gets word that Lazarus is sick. And he says, okay, I'll go. And so it says in the text that actually Jesus loves a Lazarus. And so finally he gets to the house where Lazarus is sick, but he's too late. Lazarus has died, has been buried, and has been in the grave for four days by the time Jesus shows up on the scene. And as he's walking up, the text says that Martha runs out to him. And I don't know the tone of her voice here, but here's what she says. She goes, had you been here, he would have lived. I don't know if it's accusation or mourning, but this is how Jesus responds to that statement. He says to Martha, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet still lives. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And Jesus goes to the grave and he says, take the stone away. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And the dude walks out, still mummified, still wrapped in linens. And so they have to unwrap him so he can get on and, and live his life. And again, very clearly to see what this demonstrates. Is that Jesus has power even over death. It's an incredible book, right? And so there's the signs and the miracles. He says, I'm going to use these seven signs to prove that Jesus is Christ, Son of God. Believing in him, you have, may have eternal life. After 11 chapters, we're done with the signs. The book goes 21 chapters. And so you're like, well, if that was your purpose, how are you done with the signs after chapter 11? And I think this is the reason. I think the first half of the book where he talks about the signs were to show who we should put our trust in for eternal life. I think he makes it very evident in the first 11 chapters through those seven signs, it is Jesus. Jesus has power over quality and distance and time. He has power over quantity and nature and helplessness and even death. But the second half from 11 to 21 or 12 to 21, I think what he talks about is how then do we get that eternal life? And from 12 to 21, it's all about Jesus heading to the cross. It's about his death and his burial and his ultimate resurrection. John writes, even in earliest chapter 3, he said, For God so loved the world, you, that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world, that's Christmas, to condemn the world, but he sent his son in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, is not condemned. 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed the name of the only Son of God. The greatest gift that you can ever receive is the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life in Jesus Christ. And the greatest gift you can ever give is to tell someone and share with them the hope of that message. I had a buddy who texted me this morning. He texted me an old hymn, and and the title of it is, What Will You Do With Jesus? I think that's so appropriate here and now. When we look through the gospel of John, he makes this argument that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of God and that by believing in him, you'll have life, eternal life. And the question is, what will you do with Jesus? Will you believe? Will you trust? Will you ask for forgiveness of your sins and receive his free gift of salvation? If you've already done that, will you live that out in a life that is full of worship? And will you share and tell others about the incredible hope that lies in Jesus alone? Let me pray. God, thank you so much for who you are. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for the Christmas miracle, a Christmas morning where you came to earth to live a life we could not live and die the death we deserve to die. God, and thank you for the author of John. He just takes such a different approach to to chronicling your life. He's just saying, all I need is seven miracles that prove that you have power over every situation. And so, Lord, I pray if anyone is here tonight who does not believe or who thinks there's too much time or distance or quality or quantity or helplessness that separates them from Jesus, that the gospel of John would pierce their heart. That Jesus is right there at their feet saying, choose me. I give you, freely offer you life. Come into a right, restored, renewed relationship. God, may they receive that gift and have one of the most amazing and best Christmases that they've ever experienced. We love you and continue to pray. Amen.